Son of a bitch. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show today. It feels weird doing a normal show after doing two uh, debate breakdowns. But here we are. And we ain't going nowhere. So, um... I will give you some numbers about the debate. I'll tell you um, what the consensus was about who won and why and all that fun stuff. Um, Then we have quite a bit on, you know, North Korea today, Trump and North Korea, and how everybody's a hypocrite on the Republican side and the Democratic side. We have a story later on that you're going to be absolutely floored by about um, big money donors actually getting behind an issue where people who hate big money donors will agree with them. (laughs) So that's a weird one, but we'll discuss that. Um, And yeah, I mean, I'm going to make fun of John Delaney today because that's now one of my favorite things to do. I'll give you a poll on um, what the American people want to happen with Iran. I don't think you guys will be too surprised by that. I think if you showed a bunch of idiots in Washington, D.C., that poll, they'd be stunned. But nonetheless, got a jam-packed show for you, so let's go ahead and get started. And we're going to do that um, with a follow-up on the debate, and I'll give you some numbers. So I want to give everybody a little bit of an update um, on the polls after the first Democratic debate. Take a look at this here. So uh, Walid Shahid uh, tweeted this, but he's doing it. He's um, released numbers that were from 538. So he's just talking about the findings from 538. And here's what we know. After the debates, Biden has dropped 10 points. Wow, that's huge. Uh, Warren is up two points. Bernie is up three points. And uh, Kamala is up eight points. Now, Kamala is peeling from Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden, not from Bernie. So that's good, because that was one of the concerns watching the debate, is that she was trying to sound kind of like Bernie. And when you try to sound kind of like Bernie, you get afraid that maybe some of Bernie's supporters, the ones who might not know the details of Kamala Harris's career... Um, that they might be fooled by that. But no, it turns out that um, that's not the case. Kamala is more likely to pull from Biden and more likely to pull from Warren. Certainly makes sense pulling from Biden because um, policy-wise, she is more centrist. So to pull from Biden, I kind of see. To pull from Warren, I don't necessarily get because Warren, kind of like Bernie, is is, is more or has one foot at least in the leftist camp, you could say one foot in the centrist camp as well. Um, but yeah, I guess that would make sense because the very first thing I said is she's trying to sound like Bernie. So anyway, I digress from that. These are uh, the biggest moves from the debate. Now, uh, Julian Castro and Cory Booker didn't have abysmal debates. You know, take that for, for what it's worth. Um, Tulsi Gabbard didn't have a bad debate either after the debate. She won in most of the snap polls after the first night of the debate, which is the night that, you know, she was on stage. So I do think that there's still there's still some other characters involved in the race, but we are starting to narrow it down.
John Hickenlooper is done, John Delaney's done, Tim Ryan is done. So many of these characters are just utterly useless. They're not going anywhere. Amy Klobuchar, same thing. So really what we're talking about is the major characters will be Biden, who's plummeting, and I think will continue to plummet, um, Warren, Bernie, Kamala, and then maybe you could sprinkle in a few others like Mayor Pete. Maybe you could throw hanging on for dear life there as Tulsi. Um, but really the big players, the ones that are most likely to go down to the wire here are going to be Biden, Warren, Bernie, Kamala, Mayor Pete on the fringes, and then maybe one other hanging on. So we're basically, I think we're kind of already down to six because there were some people who just, they thought like this was going to be their big breakthrough. Could you imagine being Eric Swalwell? Like, if only people get to hear me talk for an extended period of time, an extended period of time, they'll like me. And then he goes out there and then he doesn't budge at all in the polls. <laughs> I find that funny, but also incredibly refreshing because it shows you that, you know, my political instincts are still on point in the sense that I saw that coming from a mile away. doesn't matter how often, you know, Swalwell's face gets in front of the, the American people, they're not going to like him. It almost makes you wonder how he ever won any election to begin with because he's just that insufferable. So, but I think that's what we're talking about now. I think we're already down to like six. I'm curious to see when people will start dropping like flies. Um, I mean, it has to come soon because if people stay in like all the way until the Iowa caucus and they're down at 0% or 1%, they kind of hurt their political career moving forward because you it's such an abysmal performance, such an abysmal showing that, yes, even in the smaller market in a congressional district, people start to go, why did anybody vote for this person to begin with? So there's going to be a lot of face-saving coming. Maybe a lot of these characters will stick around for a, a few more debates, but if you don't see some, some budging happening, then uh, I will be stunned at that. So anyway, this is kind of expected. I told you Biden shit to bed. Oh, boy, did he ever shit to bed. I told you Warren had a decent night, but it wasn't amazing and it wasn't terrible. Poll numbers reflect that. I told you Bernie was started off very slow in the same way Tulsi started off very slow. But towards the end of their respective debates, they really picked it up. Uh, Tulsi hammered Tim Ryan on uh, war, on the war in Afghanistan, to be specific. Bernie hammered Biden on the war in Iraq. Uh, Bernie also had an amazing closing statement. Bernie... Uh, really did a great job defending Medicare for All from the, you know, cackling hyenas on stage. And um, Kamala, like I said, was the big winner of the night, and that is reflected in the polling. So the biggest takeaway is that is who we have to fear the most and who we have to um, fight politically the most. It's going to be Kamala. I think she's going to be one of the last people standing because she is a shrewd politician, absolutely a shrewd politician. And so it's on us to educate everybody about her actual record so you know what she's really about. You know, locking people up for truancy, for example. In 2014, laughing at the idea of legal marijuana. 
2014, that's not that long ago, her Republican running in the race against her was for legalized marijuana. She wasn't. She laughed at it. And the list goes on and on. You know, just coming to the idea of Medicare for All being good three and a half minutes ago and then waffling on it a thousand times as she did again. So we have to trust that when we give people her real record and when we give people Bernie's real record that they'll make the right decision. And that's all we can do moving forward. But it was a decent performance from Bernie. And um, he's got he's to kick it up a gear, don't get me wrong. You know, just the solid performances ain't going to do it. He's got to, he's got to be the one to knock it out of the park. But we'll work on that. And he'll get to the point where I think that's likely. So anyway, this was your debate breakdown. Can't wait for the next one. Oh, shit. I dropped my pen. Ah! Okay, I got it. I got it. All right, next. This next one is going to surprise. For those of you who haven't been following the news closely for the past however many days, you're going to be surprised by this story. So President Trump became the first U.S. president to step foot in North Korea. I have a short little video clip of it here for you. Take a look. So, um, pretty much everybody is a hypocrite about this. And it's really annoying. So, as expected, the Democratic candidates went after Trump for this. Elizabeth Warren had a mealy mouth statement she released about how uh, oh, Trump loves dictators. Yeah. And uh, even Bernie released some goofy shit like that. Um, and then, of course, the Republicans are just as bad in the other direction. They absolutely positively started drooling over them, drooling over Trump and fawning over him and said, this is a historic moment. It's so historic. It's so historic. Um, and I'm annoyed because nobody seems to just have principles and digest issues on their own merit. It's always like partisan tribal calculations and it annoys the shit out of me. So, Stop and think about it, guys. Barack Obama, back when he was president or when he was running to become president in 2008, he said very clearly, didn't stutter. He said, I will meet with our adversaries without preconditions. That includes Iran. That includes North Korea. That includes our enemies. I'll do that. I'll meet with them without preconditions. And Fox News melted down called him a dictator apologist, an appeaser, um, a ridiculous human being who's coasting off his own narcissism, who doesn't understand that these are dangerous people and they can't be talked to and they can't be negotiated with. And everybody on the left was like, what, what are you talking about, man? It's just talking. It's just talking. And how do you think we get peace? We get peace through negotiation and diplomacy. 
You don't go in guns blazing or refuse to talk to people who are our enemies full stop. No, that's ridiculous. So everybody had the opposite position. And then now today you have a Republican president and he goes to talk to somebody who's a terrible dictator. And all of a sudden, everybody who's supposed to be on the left is like, oh, what an appeaser you are. Why are you talking to them? And then everybody on the right is like, oh, this is wonderful. Talk to more dictators. So what's my take? My take is the same take I had under Obama. Yes, the only way that you're going to get peace is through diplomacy and negotiation. And you should talk to your adversaries. Absolutely. So am I, do I support Trump doing this? Of course. Because what's the alternative, guys? We're talking about a guy who has John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, and Gina Haspel in his administration. They are war criminals. Literally. Gina Haspel is a torturer. These are people who never met a war they didn't like. Do you not understand that if Trump wasn't doing some goofy shit like this, they would be this close to launching the missiles? They would be this close to doing some sort of military intervention? Do you not understand that? Do you not understand that that's what all of the pressure in Washington, D.C. is pointing towards, and that neocons still run the show, and this is what they want, and they're cringing behind the scenes watching Trump do this? Do you not get that? So if the, if the options are have silly reality TV show buffoon president meet with dictator Kim Jong-un and shake hands and play nice with each other, or let's go to war, I'm 10 out of 10 times going to say, yeah, go ahead, let's do it. And Trump gets his fucking photo op and his happy day in the sun where most of the American people are going to say, oh, great, look, we're like moving towards peace. The first U.S. president to step in North Korea, that is historic. He gets his day in the sun, he gets his glowing headlines, and that's fine. I See, I, unlike a lot of people, I actually care about the issues. So... I don't give a fuck if that means in rare instances I say, okay, Trump, good job. I don't care. I mean, the fact of the matter is 95% of the time he's going to be a fucking idiot and he's going to be a corrupt sellout and he's going to be a loser and he's going to be a warmonger. We're, we're still in Iraq. We're still in Afghanistan. We're still in Syria. Um, we're still doing drone strikes in Pakistan and Yemen and Somalia and Mali. So uh, plenty of shit to attack there on foreign policy trying to go to war with Iran right this second, still a lot of stuff to attack. But that doesn't mean that I can't notice a good thing when I fucking see it. And that's what this is. This is a good thing. Now, is there a criticism of Trump on this that makes sense? Sure. The criticism is, I bet you nothing's going to come from this. That's a totally fair criticism, and that's probably true. Because Trump is too dumb to, like, really actively hold... John Bolton and Mike Pompeo and Gina Haspel at bay. And I think in the long run, they'll win out. I think in the long run, and also Trump is fickle. All it takes is one mean word from Kim Jong-un and the whole fucking thing falls apart and Trump's tweeting about he's a terrible person and I'll rain down fire and fury on you again. So there is an argument that this is going to end up nowhere because there is no coherent philosophy guiding Trump. And to the extent that there is a philosophy in his administration, it's hawkish because he's surrounded by all these hawkish advisors. So the criticism is, I bet you nothing actually comes of this that's substantive, and all this is, we're, we're on thin ice right now, and all this could break through at any minute. That's the criticism. The criticism is not, oh my God, you're appeasing dictators, and you love dictators, and that's bad. No, when it comes to bad guys 
who are official state enemies, those are exactly the people you should talk to because we want to de-escalate from the brink of war. When it comes to bad guys who are dictators who are your allies, like Saudi Arabia, those are the ones who you should take action to try to force them to do the right thing because they're already our allies. You can apply political pressure to the people who you have some sway over. We have some sway over Saudi Arabia since we give them billions of dollars of weapons every year. Since we back them and they back us. So we have sway over them. We could actually, through political pressure, change their actions to one degree or another. That's who you could do it. When it's your official state enemy, no. You have no sway over them. What are you going to do? So you have to sit down. You have to talk. You have to do diplomacy. You have to do negotiations. This isn't something to attack him over. And virtually every single Democratic candidate took the bait. Tim Ryan went on Fox News. He's doing an appeasement tour. You're using the same shitty arguments that Republicans use against Obama when it came to Iran and other places. And we laughed at Republicans when they did that. And to the Republicans, make your fucking mind up. Because so many of them... We're like, don't you dare talk to dictators. That's appeasement. You're doing an apology tour, and I don't like it. That was under Obama. Now under Trump, it's us. Oh, yeah. So make your fucking mind up. Everybody's such a goddamn hypocrite. Have a principle. I honestly would have more respect for somebody who's principled and wrong than somebody who flips their take on this because they're just tribal partisan idiots. So I have more respect for a genuine hawk who says, No, Obama shouldn't have talked to Iran. No, Trump shouldn't talk to North Korea. Because at least I know you actually believe something. (laughs) At least I know you have a philosophy, even if it's one that I massively disagree with. And I think you're odious. At least there's something there. There's some there there. But for all, like the Fox News hosts, the Laura Ingrams, the fucking, you know, uh, what's his name? Brian Kilmeade and those idiots. They don't believe anything. They just flip it like that. Elizabeth Warren doesn't believe anything. She flipped it like that, too. You know, it's just, it's a shame. Even Bernie kind of fed into this bullshit. Bernie was kind of clear that diplomacy is the way to go, but he did frame it like, oh, Trump shouldn't have done this. Why? 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 Because Kim Jong-un is bad. Oh, wow, what a great point. We didn't know that. Thank you. (laughs) What the fuck are you doing? Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay, so... This is rare good news. It it is. And, by the way, final point I'll make on on this is this. When you go to South Korea, okay, and this is is the place that's most impacted by this issue. Because if if there was ever some sort of conflict, it would be North Korea versus South Korea. If there was any some sort of, like, missiles in the air today, it would be North Korea and South Korea attacking each other. Toledo, Ohio is safe. California is safe. Uh, New York is safe. Kim Jong-un is not going to attack us. When you go to people in South Korea, the overwhelming majority of them, except the hardline, super far right wingers, the majority of South Koreans are like, yeah, we want peace. Yeah, it's great that the president of the United States just stepped foot in North Korea and we're closer to peace. So for the people who are impacted by this issue most directly, they are looking at the partisan idiots in the U.S. going, shut the fuck up, man. Shut up. We want peace. We like this. This is positive because it makes them more safe. So to think about some like, you know, asshole Western TV pundit sitting in their comfy air-conditioned studio knowing that Kim Jong-un is never going to attack us and never going to attack them. For them to pontificate like, mm, why is Trump giving a photo out to him? Mm. 
Think about how narcissistic that is and how selfish that is and how, how much they don't care about Koreans. So this is a good thing. I don't give a fuck what anybody says because I've seen so many hacky tweets about this. Oh, my God. It's so annoying. Guys, it's okay. It's okay. 95% of the time we can attack Trump. 95% of the time. On the rare instance where he does something okay, it's not the end of the world. You've got to care more about the issues than you care about the politician, than you care about the person. That's the only way to be a serious human being and to actually try to improve the planet. Okay. All right, now let's go to a very good story about nepotism. So Ivanka Trump was at the G20 summit with her dad, and um, we have this glorious and awkward moment of her trying to butt into a conversation with world leaders. That video was released by, I believe, the French government. And it was almost like a little bit of a, of an eye roll, a nudge, a, come on, what's going on here? What are you doing? Listen, I'm consistent on this issue. If Hillary Clinton was president and you had Chelsea Clinton rubbing elbows with world leaders trying to butt her way into a conversation at an international conference, I would be livid because it is just grotesque, disgusting, rank nepotism. That's why she's in the room. And that's exactly what it is with Ivanka Trump. Why are you there? What are you doing? What do you do? What qualifications do you have to be there? Now, I'm not one to normally even give a fuck about qualifications because what does that mean? You know, there's different bars or different levels of qualifications. So, You can be in that room if you're able to be in that room and it's not just a corrupt, disgusting, backwards, backroom, nepotistic deal, which is the only reason why you're even in the administration. You're the president's daughter. That's it. That's it. And that's what's going on right now. That's exactly what it is. She didn't win an election. Her dad won an election. Now, whether or not we like it that Donald Trump is president, we all know he's president. So... uh, As silly as it is when he's there, he has every right to be there. And none of us would be looking at this video like, what is Trump doing standing next to other world leaders? No, they'd be like, yeah, he's the fucking president of the United States, of course. When is the president's daughter? Why the fuck is she there? Why is she there? Why is she butting into a conversation with world leaders? And you heard, I don't know if you heard the point that she made, but she was trying to do the old, like, tee-hee-hee, it's hard to be a woman in, in, in public life, isn't it? And they're all looking at each other. Bitch, what? Like, why are you here? What are you doing? It, yeah, it's really tough to be a woman. You're the president's daughter. That's the only reason why you're even in this room. Real, oh, it's real tough for you, isn't it? 
just got handed a position in the administration. This is insane, man. This is crazy. And we all know damn well that if it was, you know, Malia Obama or whatever, if she was old enough at the time, like if Obama just granted her a position in the administration and had her in a room with world leaders, Republicans would be melting down because they'd be like, what is this? Listen, what this shows the world is obviously meritocracy is not a thing in the United States of America. That's what it shows the world. Now, we already knew that was the case because we're educated on that topic, and meritocracy is a myth. But this broadcast to the world, like, the worst kind of corruption and nepotism is par for the course in the U.S. We're not, even, we're not even trying to put on a front. We're not even trying to put on a veneer of respectability and seriousness. It's like, I don't care. President's daughter? Sure. You get a position. Why the fuck not? That's so embarrassing to watch, man. And honestly, the fact that it was the French government that released this, that was them, like, saying the exact same thing that I'm saying right now. That's what that is. That's them going, look at these fucking idiots over here. Look at what's going on with the Americans. Really? (laughs) World leaders, my ass cheeks. World leaders. Somebody called her nepotism Barbie. (laughs) That's Ivanka. Listen, at least you know your role, dog. Know that you got that position simply because you're the president's daughter and you really don't deserve to be there. Understand that and act accordingly. It's like you're trying, it's like the worst kind of like trying to fit into the popular kids club that we're watching right there. Fucking brown nosing attempt to like, weasel your way into, I'm thinking of like Mean Girls, the movie Mean Girls. It's like you're just, all you want is approval from these fucking world leaders. Uh, I need a shower after watching that video. Go away. You shouldn't even be in the administration. It's embarrassing that you're in the administration. Donald Trump ran a campaign pretending like he was this outsider. He was this anti-establishment character. He doesn't believe in corruption and nepotism. And then what does he do? Appoints his family to his cabinet and then hires Goldman Sachs all throughout his administration. The exact opposite of what he ran on. So this is just sad. I feel embarrassed when I watch stuff like this. This is a national nightmare and we have to end it. Let's make fun of MSNBC. So MSNBC demonstrated yet again that they're the worst, and they're not at all on the left. They are corporate. They are establishment. And um, they will back the Democratic leadership and the Democratic Party. But they ain't going to actually back the left. So look at Donnie Deutsch. He is going to give his breakdown after the Democratic debate. Take note of the advice that he gives to candidates here. I quoted you on Nicole's broadcast as saying, if it's Warren, they'll lose 48 states. 
Uh, with that as the backdrop, how did you think they did tonight? I want to work back from, to me, the moment where the room came alive, and to me it's the ultimate tell, when Inslee said our biggest threat is Donald Trump. And that, to me, still is what is driving voters and still was not touched tonight. The reason some people reacted positively to de Blasio, because you saw another bully up there. He, he was kind of invading other people's spaces. Cory Booker had a strength. The reason people have not gone after it to this point um, Biden is because he is seen as the anti-Trump, and it will backfire at this point until he's not. So to me, that is the big thing, and it was not addressed tonight. This is not an issues campaign. This is who is the bully that can beat the bully. And I think, interestingly enough, Booker showed a certain strength there. Even de Blasio, even though I found him annoying also, he cut through. And I think that is the driver. It's not issues. It's not universal health care. Oh. It's not a woman's reproductive rights, oh. as important as that is. We, are the, we have lived through all these things before. We've lived through Iran. We have lived through Korea. We have lived through issues on health care. We have not lived through an assault on our democracy and an assault on our senses. That is what everybody is lensing everything through. So I don't think Warren moved that ball particularly. I, I do think, interestingly enough, Booker did move that ball. Donnie, um, just to keep your frame around this, I've got a list of um, who dropped the pres Trump's name the most. And you're right, Warren didn't mention Donald Trump. Neither did um, de Blasio, based on this list. Amy Klobuchar invoked Donald Trump uh, nine times, and Tim Ryan uh, was second with seven. Do you think that an opportunity was missed yes. to sort of indict all of the moral and legal and ethical and policy trespasses of the Trump years? And if you do, why do you think they made that decision? It was obviously a strategic choice. I, it's the wrong, so people want to hear somebody stand up and say, this is a horrific assault on who we are on every level, everything we stand for. And he needs to go, and I'm the one to take him out. People are yearning for that. They are crying for that. You heard it even in that applause to Jay Inslee or the man had a very bad night. I don't understand how people don't know that. That supersedes everything else 10x. Spoken like a truly out-of-touch, rich douche. So his philosophy is, I don't understand what you're wasting time for on the issues. Just be really anti-Trump. If you are the most anti-Trump, you're going to win this election. That's it. Oh, really, Donnie? That's it? See, the only way anybody can make themselves believe that is if they have all their needs taken care of. So Donnie Deutsch, he doesn't have to worry about paying bills. He doesn't have to worry about going bankrupt because uh, he needed surgery out of nowhere. He doesn't have to worry about student loan debt. He doesn't have to worry about, you know, not making enough money, getting no vacation time, and not making a living wage, even though he works full-time. He doesn't have to worry about any of that stuff. He's perfectly comfortable. So in his narrow worldview, well, what do you mean? The problem, there is, there's no larger problem. There's no policy-related, issues-related problem. The only issue that I see that's, a, that's bad is, like, Trump does a lot of unhinged tweets, and he's really embarrassing, and he's, he, you know, sometimes he, he just, he goes nuts, and I, I don't like the guy. I don't like the way he presents himself. I don't like how unhinged he is. You know, it, it just, this is an, he's an assault on our democracy and on our senses. So, obviously, the problem is that guy, just remove that guy, and we're fine. Except 
that then how do you describe how do you explain how we got Trump in the first place? We basically had the epitome of the anti-Trump before Trump. I mean, Barack Obama is, you know, a young, intelligent black dude who was a constitutional law professor who was, you know, basically a centrist at heart. And still, under that system, people went, I'm going to roll the dice and go with this fucking lunatic, Trump. Why? Why would they do that? Why would they do that? Do you have any theory to explain that, Donnie Deutsch? No, you don't. You have none. Because your argument is, let's just go back to what it was before Trump. Let's, all we got to do is get rid of Trump and we're good. No, see, the problem is, even if you get rid of Trump, you have 76% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck. You have 50% of the American people making $30,000 a year or less. You have 30 to 40 million Americans who are uninsured. You have 30 to 45,000 Americans who die every year because they don't have access to basic health care. You have the United States of America jailing more people than any other country on earth. And, you know, we could sit here all day and ring off statistics about how the U.S. is in decline how we waste all this money on war and on Wall Street bailouts as regular people struggle. $1.6 trillion in student loan debt. You know, over a trillion dollars in credit card debt. We have a totally unregulated derivatives market, which is a goddamn ticking time bomb, and the economy is going to crash. You know, we have, what, 500,000 homeless people? So you had all these problems, this disgusting, rotten system, Nobody was addressing it, so people wanted the most extreme option. They said, I don't know, maybe he'll address it. Now, he didn't address it. But the idea that you don't run a campaign on the issues, you just run a campaign on him bad. Well, let me introduce you to somebody we all know by the name of Hillary Clinton. How'd that go? Her whole campaign was, break down your barriers, stronger together, platitudes and cliches. And isn't he terrible? Oh, my God, look at him. He's so bad. Can't go with him, right? Can't go with him. I guess you guys have no choice. I guess you have to go with me. I guess I'm entitled to this position, right? Because what are you going to do? You're going to go with that guy? How'd that work out, Donnie Deutsch? How'd that work out? Listen, I shouldn't have to do this segment. I shouldn't have to say the things that I'm saying right now because I file it and you guys file it, most of you guys file it, under obvious, under duh. But unfortunately, it's not all that duh to the idiots on TV. In fact, it's not duh at all. If anything, they think his position is filed under duh. Like, what do you mean? Just say you're against Trump and that's it. By the way, he said, oh, the reason Bill de Blasio did well is because Bill de Blasio, he was being anti-Trump. Bill de Blasio postured himself as the furthest left candidate on stage. That's what he was trying to do. And that's why a lot of people after the fact were like, oh, shit, he's, he actually might be serious. Like, he had a good performance. It's actually because of the shit he was saying that was policy-related. Like he's, he's so confused. But I shouldn't have to make this argument. What I'm saying should be obvious, but it's really not. And the prevailing conventional wisdom in Washington, D.C., in mainstream media, is exactly what he's saying. This isn't about the issues. Please, shut the fuck up. Don't tell people you're going to give universal health care. What are you doing? Don't tell people you're going to abolish student loan debt. What are you doing? What are you doing? Oh, you can be, be cool, be cool, be cool. Keep the status quo as it is. Just get rid of Trump. Well, as I said, 
that position he has is polluted by his own position in life. Yeah, he doesn't have to worry about bills. He doesn't have to worry about all these problems. He's a rich asshole on TV. So, listen, it didn't have to be that way. He didn't have to let that aspect of his life ruin his objectivity, but he did let that happen. So now he says stupid things like that, and he gets paid a tremendous amount of money to say it. So really, MSNBC and guys like Donnie Deutsch, they act as a gatekeeper on the Democratic side. So they act as like, okay, how far left can we all be? Well, we could all despise Trump. Oh, yeah, Trump's so bad. Trump's so evil. Trump's so wrong. But don't go any further than that. Don't get into the details of it. Don't say, hey, here's a, a, a list of policy positions that I want because I think this is how we fix the country. Don't do that. So functionally, they're serving as left gatekeepers. You can go this far left and not any further. Well, you know, bad news for Donnie Deutsch is now you have some competition, and that competition is fucking a YouTube host. <laughs> and here we are, and you have no chance in this battle. So... Please stop embarrassing yourself. I don't want to cover anything you say ever again because you're so you're a creepy loser. So stop it. Just stop. I don't know how this guy has a job, but actually I do. He probably knows whoever's his boss, <laughs> and that's how he got his job. But yeah, this is the analysis, the deep analysis that's allowed on MSNBC. Trump bad. Trump bad. Wow, Donnie. Wow. What a brilliant thinker you are. Okay. Medicare for all time, baby. John Delaney is going to get obliterated. So John Delaney keeps shoving his foot in his mouth on the issue of Medicare for all. Here he is babbling while Ali Velshi tries to correct him. Right, Medicare Advantage is an option that our seniors get. John, they don't pay anything more for it. I understand, John, but whether the, the, the senior pays for it, the insurance system pays for it, the government pays for it, your private insurance pays for it, there are higher costs and lower costs, right? So when, you, so when I say something costs more and you say it doesn't cost the user more, it costs the system more. So the United States pays more than double what all industrialized countries pay for health care. Right. That's a cost that might be borne by you. It might be borne by your insurance company. There's a reason for it, right? If you would need a specialist, so in, if you need a specialist in the U.K., mm-hmm. right, it's not emergency care, you've got to wait about nine months. That's just you get true. It, yeah, just it is not true. true. That's it. I just had a, no, I just had a friend of mine who had a hip replacement in the I, UK. I, I had, had to wait nine months. Okay. I'm just saying. I, I just I think you got to have your facts right. Medicare uh, for listen, all. Listen, my facts are 100 percent right. The gentleman from Kaiser just confirmed okay. it. So Medicare, Medicare doesn't pay the cost of health care. That's a fact. Private insurance pays twice what Medicare does for hospitals. If every hospital were reimbursed at the Medicare rate, they would close. So what's your answer to that? No, Where does my, that, no but what's your answer to that? My argument is you're basically arguing that hospitals should close. I, I'm not, I mean, this is economics. You're an economist. You've got to understand that for me. That's fine. I, 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 I'm not making that argument at all. And what's your argument to 100 million Americans are going to lose their health care? Why would you lose your health care for all program? By definition, because it makes it illegal. I'm not going to get a word. Here's an example. What if 
this new Medicare for All program doesn't reimburse. Before mental heart means everybody gets it. There are 11 basic health benefits, the, the guaranteed health benefits that were there under Obamacare. I'm not arguing it's a better deal. I'm just telling you your argument that people are losing health care under it is incorrect. It, it is correct. It's not correct. The for all part means for all. Okay. But it's not what? the same, but, but it's your choice. How do you know the Medicare for all benefits are going to be the same? Again, my dad didn't need an electrician. He loved his health care that he got through the IBW. If my dad were alive today and I were to say to him, Dad, you got to get off that IBW, and trust me, we're going to have this great I new government plan, I he'd be like, I'll, let me see it first. I hear you white people are, would be frustrated. I'm just saying it, it is coverage for all people. It may not be at the level that you're used to when you're insurance company pays twice as much as Medicare. I think that's understandable. Okay, so then, so what are the people who then have? Well, they're not losing their health care. I never said they lost their health care. You just said that. <laughs> he said repeatedly, you're going to lose your health care. And then when pushed on at the end, he's like, I never said they're going to lose their health care. Bro, what the, stop talking, dog. Stop talking. You're embarrassing. You are embarrassing. And now you're the unwitting face of corporate sharks who've been ripping people off for decades. Jesus Christ, you're stupid, John Delaney. Okay, so um, uh, let's let's break this down a little bit. There was a, a moment there in the middle where John Delaney says, what do you mean? It's your choice. It's your choice under this system. My dad has health care through, you know, a union contract. It's his choice. He gets to keep it, so that's better. Stop and think about how stupid this notion is of choice when it comes to health insurance. What does that mean by definition? Here's what it means. You have a choice in what gets covered in your health insurance plan. Who in their right mind would sit there and go, okay, so if I get some sort of heart disease, let's cover that. But if I get cancer, no, don't cover that. If something happens with a broken bone, cover that. If there's something wrong with my kidney or my spleen, I'm good. I don't need coverage on that. What the fuck are you talking about? This notion of choice. Choice when it comes to health insurance. Here's the extent of the choice that would make sense. Sick. Help. That's it. <laughs> choice. What do you mean choice when it comes to health insurance? If you're sick, if you need help, you should get help and you shouldn't have to go bankrupt for it and it should be covered at the point of service. Period. That's it. That's what every other developed nation has said. That's the conclusion that they came to because they're not giant idiots or corporate corrupt tools. I don't know which one you are, John Delaney. I'm kind of thinking both. Okay, so let's explain in more detail what exactly this means under Medicare for All, because there is a little bit of confusion out there. Now, some would say I'm partly responsible for feeding that confusion. I disagree with that, because I think that a lot of this stuff is beyond obvious where it didn't even need me to mention it. But under Medicare for All, duplicitous care is banned. So what does that mean? That means that if you have a problem under Medicare for All and you go get it taken care of, whatever kind of surgery you want to you know, throw in there, you need liver surgery or something. I don't know. Um, that's covered and that's taken care of. It would be illegal for a private for-profit insurance company to say, oh, we're going to cover your liver surgery, but we're going to charge you three times what you're paying under taxes on Medicare for All. 
That would be illegal under Medicare for All because it's duplicitous care and is predatory by definition. So if, if you have a role for private insurance companies, the only role there is is what's called supplemental care. Now, I'm totally in favor of supplemental private insurance and supplemental private care. But what does that mean? Supplemental is very simple. It means extra. So there are going to be things under a Medicare for All system which exist in a gray area. And they're in a gray area for a reason, because they belong in a gray area. So, for example, there's a lot of people who swear by chiropractors and say this is legitimate. This is totally a form. This is a doctor. So what do you mean? The reality is they're not doctors, that they're doing um, tactics and procedures that are totally unproven. Their whole philosophy is based off this thing called vertebral subluxation and the whole idea of it originally, seriously, you should go read about this, it's insane, is that, oh, the reason why, you know, people get all different kinds of diseases is because their spine is not straight. And so we're here to put their spine in alignment and therefore cure all these ailments that are impacting them. That's the original idea of chiropractic medicine. It's not medicine. It's pseudoscience through and through. But still, some people swear by it. Now, some people, it's just really a placebo, and they admit it's a placebo. So should that be covered under a Medicare for All system? Because it's totally unproven and it's based on pseudoscience. So should tax dollars fund that? What do you think? I think no, because it's not real. It doesn't work. How about homeopathy? Homeopathy is like kind of like water therapy where you have a tiny little minute amount of some substance mixed in with water and you give people like drops of that substance and they swear by it. Well, problem with that is, you know, uh, studies show it's not real. Like, you're not actually getting a benefit from it. So should Medicare for All cover that? I say no. And I give you a thousand other examples, because there really are like a thousand examples, of things that exist in this gray area where people say that's real health care, but the evidence says it's not real health care. So what do you do for situations like that? Well, that's where the role of private insurance and private health care can come in, supplemental care. Oh, you don't like the traditional approach where we're using proven medicine under a Medicare for All system where you get sick and you get help and you don't have to pay the point of service, fine. Here's another option. You want to do private insurance and you want to do private care for these things? By all means, go right ahead. So yes, 95% of the rapacious, for-profit, private insurance con men that exist right now, they wouldn't exist anymore under the current system. But that doesn't mean you ban supplemental private insurance. That doesn't mean you ban supplemental private care. That's what we're talking about here. So I fundamentally reject this notion from John Delaney of like, what do you mean, bro? Choice. What about choice? Choice? What, what are you talking about? Why should it be legal for a for-profit private health insurance company to say, hey, you give me X amount of dollars per month, and then if you get sick, maybe I do cover it, maybe I don't cover it. I don't know, bro. Maybe check the details to see if you get your liver surgery covered uh, with the plan that you currently have. Hey, I don't know, bro. Sure, I charge you $500 a month, but now you have a deductible of $5,000 before I pay anything. Well, I can't afford $5,000. Too bad, bro. Choice. You signed up for it. I gave you the choice of going fucking bankrupt, even though you have insurance. So... John Delaney is full of shit. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And thankfully, this is an issue where Ali Belshi is Canadian. And so he knows that what John Delaney is saying is bullshit. 
And the idea of wait lines is also bullshit. For elective procedures, you might have to wait. You want to know why? Because they're elective procedures. But if you need help, you get it, and you get it immediately. Now, here in the U.S., they act like we don't have wait lines here. <laughs> we sure as shit do. And it's littered with the body of 30 to 45,000 dead Americans who couldn't get health care because they couldn't fucking afford it. So not only do we have wait lines here, they're, they're littered with dead bodies. So everybody rations care. It's a matter of what are your priorities when you ration care. They do it in single-payer countries based off of need. In other words, the most rational way to ration care. Here in the U.S., we do it based off of the size of your wallet. A very classist and stupid way to ration care. So John Delaney is wrong. He's a loser. And he's polling at 0% for a goddamn reason, 1% max, for a goddamn reason. And thank you to Ali Velshi for busting him up without even trying. When we come back, um, we're going to talk about Iran. We're going to talk about Tim Ryan. We got Megan McCain and Julian Castro going at it. We have all that and much more. Don't go anywhere, bitch. We're just getting started.
Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back, Cotter. Ow. All right, let's talk about Iran. Ah! I just dropped something. It's all good, baby. Actually, I can't fucking reach that. All right, whatever. I don't even care, bro. Doesn't even matter, bro. Okay. <clears throat> so we have a new poll out on the issue of a war with Iran. This is a poll done by Harris X, and The Hill is showing it here. They say, what best describes your opinion about appropriate response to recent hostilities? Um, that's cut off there on my paper. I actually can't see it. <laughs> Anyway, here, I'll show you the uh, the chart. So, seek a negotiated solution. 49%. Do nothing. 9%. Respond with a limited military strike. 19%. Declare war on Iran. 5%. Unsure. 19%. So, let's do the math on that. This is always risky for somebody like me to do math on air because I'm an idiot and I suck at math. Um, but so the only militaristic options are respond with a limited military strike and declare war on Iran. By the way, I would argue those are literally the same thing. A limited military strike is still an act of war. But let's do the math on that. 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. So that's 24. What's 100 minus 24 is 76. So 76% of the American people say, do not do a military strike, do not use a military option. And a plurality say, let's seek a negotiated solution. So, yeah, it's almost like everything we've been saying about the issue of war since the beginning of this show existing is correct, that the default reaction from people is to view war and military force as a last resort option to defend the nation from some sort of imminent attack. And the way that we actually use the military is not that at all in today's day and age. We use it like we are the world police, and of course we use it as well for nefarious reasons. We use it um, for geopolitical power reasons and for jacking natural resources. That's obvious to anybody who knows the history of U.S. foreign policy post-World War II specifically. Um, but the default take of most Americans is non-intervention. And this is while being bombarded with nonstop propaganda as well. That's another important point is that they're being just pelted left and right with propaganda about, oh, my God, Iran, they're aggressive. They're the number one state sponsor of terror. How many times have you heard that? About a zillion. They're the number one state sponsor of No, Saudi Arabia, who's our top ally, is the number one state sponsor of terror. Iran is the number one state sponsor of terror. Iran is the number one state sponsor of terror. Iran is the number one state sponsor of terror. Even given all this propaganda, people go, hmm, let's not do a military strike. The propaganda is not working anymore, man, because people in the age of the Internet, it's just not getting through. The same thing with Medicare for All. I mean, they've tried so hard. They've smeared Medicare for All 
14 ways to Sunday, man. Just nonstop smearing it, acting like, you know, there are going to be death panels and your grandma's going to die and there's going to be weight lines and it's going to be terrible and we have the best health care in the world, even though we don't. Um, what is it, 37th according to the World Health Organization, but according to the Commonwealth Fund, out of 11 developed nations, we are number 11 dead last. I mean, all the propaganda is now falling on deaf ears and people are going, I don't think any of that's true. So that's definitely something to celebrate. And I don't know, maybe, just maybe, the reason why Trump pulled back at the very last minute when it comes to Iran is because of this. Maybe he thought, like, the numbers are going to be way against me. And if that's the case, hey, man, more power to him, more credit to him, because I don't give a fuck what his reasoning is to come to the right position as long as he comes to the right position. But, you know, if he actually believes that what he did is correct, the let's not go to war, well, then you've got to fire John Bolton, you've got to fire Mike Pompeo, and you've got to fire Gina Haspel. You surrounded yourselves with the most hawkish, bloodthirsty neocons on the planet, and then you're surprised when they try to push you into war every three seconds. So, just get rid of him, man. What the fuck are you doing? Just get rid of John Bolton. Get rid of all these clowns. All right, let's make fun of Tim Ryan. So Tim Ryan spoke to MSNBC after the Democratic debate, and I have to show you this video because it highlights a key misconception in Washington, D.C. about politics and the way for Democrats to win. Watch. Joining me now is Congressman Ryan. You were certainly up late, so welcome. I'm glad to have you this morning. Thank you. You were up on stage with nine other colleagues. It was a crowded house. But you had a very different message there amidst two hours of overwhelmingly progressive messaging. And you said the Democratic candidate needs to pay attention to the whole country. Yeah. What did Ohio voters who you know best, what did they hear? I think there was a lot of going over their head. Who's, who's talking about my wages? I mean, did we hear anything about wages last night? You know, we heard about raising taxes. We heard about, which a lot of us are for a lot of these things, but you've got to talk to the worker and the family that's struggling day to day. They're not talking about Trump. They're not talking about all these policies. They want to know you care about them. And that's my fear, is that we're walking down a road of we're going to take your insurance away from you if you have health insurance. We don't understand your day-to-day activities and stresses and anxieties. And if we miss that, that's how Trump got in in the first place. That's basically what I'm trying to say. Look, we just did this. And if we do it again, he's going to win again. Okay, well, he won last time not talking about policy. He doesn't currently govern focused on policy. But last night, for all of you, it was policy-focused. And that is how you won the midterms. So what's the right combination? Well, I think we won the midterms because our candidates in a lot of those races were talking about lunch bucket issues. Sherrod Brown won Ohio. We're talking about the dignity of work. The, the candidates, the 30 or 40 candidates that won for us to get a, get us the majority, they were talking about lunch bucket issues. Someone gave me some really good advice when I first started politics. They said, nobody cares what you know until they know that you care. And I don't think that the working class people know that we 
care about them right now, and so they don't care about our policies. So the people in Ohio who might not like the president's policies, uh, they might not like his motivation, they like the idea of America first. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's what Democrats are giving them? Well, no. I mean, our, our, me our message is muddled. Of course we want America first, and if, because that means they're first. That means their family is first. That means you're going to put them first. And if we don't connect with that emotion, there's not going to be any policy. And that's what I was trying to say. If we, you know, How are you going to beat Mitch McConnell? How are you going to win the Senate back? How are you going to win a Senate seat in Iowa? How are you going to win a Senate seat in North Carolina? How are you going to win a Senate seat? You want to go down and play in Georgia and play in Florida and play in the Kansas. You want to play in Iowa. Those are lunch bucket uh, communities. Okay, but then last night was your shot. Yeah. Why not take a shot at Elizabeth Warren and say, how are you going to pay for that? You are going to rock this system and reelect the president. Why not do that? You had a moment. You had two hours. Yeah, well, I had seven minutes. <laughs> and, I, you know, I stood up there and called out coastal elites and Ivy Leagues. I mean, like, I couldn't have been more direct than really a lot of people on stage. And look, I like everybody. This is not like a personal thing. It's just like the perception of our party is Coastal and Ivy League. And I called that out, and I was the only one who did it, and I'm going to continue to do it, and hopefully we'll continue to get traction. So this highlights the clearest false dichotomy in politics that I've ever seen. They're trying to make you believe that the Democrats have a choice, and the choice is you either go for the two-times Obama voter who then flipped to vote for Donald Trump, or you go for the Democratic base. That's the choice that they're presenting you. What are you going to do? You're going to abandon the Rust Belt worker? Is that what you're going to do? You're going to, you know, you can either go for them or you could hold your base. You can't have both. I'm here to tell you, you absolutely can have both, and it's with one simple strategy and it's called the populism stupid <laughs> populism works not just with the former you know two times obama voter who flipped to trump in the rust belt populism also works with the democratic base because what is economic populism what is left populism it's medicare for all it's free college it's a living wage it's ending the wars and doing an infrastructure deal here and rebuilding our own country with the money that we're wasting overseas that's economic populism. That's left populism. That is exactly what's needed to get both of those kinds of voters. The fact that, see, what they're trying to do is say, like, well, obviously Tim Ryan represents, you know, the Rust Belt worker a lot better. But no, Tim Ryan is a centrist. And actually, in a national election, that centrist is more likely to lose to Donald Trump in the Rust Belt. Because it turns out that those Midwestern voters don't like centrism, but they're trying to pretend like that's what the Midwestern voter is all about, and that's what the Rust Belt voter is all about. That's just not true. People want to feel like you're fighting for them. And both the Democratic base and the two-times Obama voter who flipped to Trump in the Rust Belt, they'll know you're fighting for them when you say, let's fundamentally reform the system and here's what we're in favor of. Medicare for all, free college, living wage, ending the wars, uh, infrastructure deal to rebuild the country, so on and so forth. So don't buy into the false dichotomy. But that's what they're trying to do. And they're also trying to say, as you heard uh, Stephanie Rule say there, like, oh, you know, Trump, Trump, it wasn't about policy, which is, you know, that's, 
Trump didn't win because of policy, but you guys were all policy. As if it's bad to focus on policy. No, it's important to focus on policy because people aren't fucking idiots, and they try to vote based on their best self-interest. So, yeah, you should focus on policy. You absolutely should focus on policy. But it's got to be the right policy. <laughs> That's the most important point. It's got to be correct. You shouldn't go up there and say, um, I'm for means testing and changing the chain CPI on Social Security. No, you have to be a swashbucking populist. Swash, swashbucking, swashbuckling populist. And um, Tim Ryan is not that. So don't buy into this false dichotomy bullshit. Yeah, they, oh, be more centrist. That's the only way you win the Rust Belt. Hillary Clinton was as centrist as they come for Democrats. And she lost the Rust Belt. So obviously you're wrong, but it makes you wonder, do they, do they say this stuff because they're just trying to serve their donors, so they have no choice but to say this stuff, or do they say it because they still believe it? They still believe that centrism is the way to go. Whatever it is, I don't care. They're wrong either way. Okay, let's go to Megan McCain and Julian Castro. God, I hate Megan McCain. So Megan McCain pressed Julian Castro on the view uh, about his take on the border, and I found this exchange pretty funny for a few reasons. Let's watch. idea on the border. So there are civil offenses, misdemeanors, and felonies. Felonies are the most serious crime, and you know usually they involve some sort of bodily harm on others. 
Um, misdemeanors are less serious and they involve either a fine or usually less than a year in jail. And then uh, civil offenses and civil cases usually only result in fines or orders not to do something from the court. And those things are called injunctions. Um, now, you can't go to jail for a civil violation, although a civil violation can lead to criminal penalties. So in other words, if you, um, if you did a civil violation and you're cited on it and you're supposed to go to court a certain day and then you don't go to court that day, well, then it becomes criminal and you're guilty of failure to appear in court and you can be locked up. So basically we're talking about three separate levels of crimes, civil offenses, misdemeanors, and felonies. Right now, crossing a, uh, the border into the U.S. illegally is a misdemeanor, and he's saying let's make it um, a civil offense. So it's still illegal, but it, it doesn't carry as serious a penalty. Now, the other main reason why they're trying to do that is actually a very simple one, and, and I think people understand why they're doing this when this fact is explained, which is it stops the breakup of the families if you change it from a misdemeanor to a, a civil offense. So it, everybody's all concerned about, you know, families being broken up at the border, and it's now a big issue, and kids are being held in cages and shit, and the optics of that are terrible on top of it just being pretty much immoral. So why not fix that by still having border crossings illegal, but instead of it being a misdemeanor, change it to a civil offense, and then you can actually keep the families together, even though we're acknowledging that crossing a border illegally is still illegal. So that's the theory behind it. You can agree or disagree with it. But to act like what Meghan McCain said is true, that's just not true. The idea of like, oh, I guess you want open borders now. That's not true. That's not even close to true. Meghan McCain didn't even try to understand this issue. Meghan McCain didn't even try to, to get the accurate position of her political opponents. She just wants, she's just the lazy, like, it's open borders, and open borders is bad. The Democrats have repeatedly tried to make a border deal with the Trump administration. Every deal they made includes increased militarization of the border. So if they're for open borders, but they still want border crossings to be illegal, and they still want to increase border security, I got news for you, Meghan McCain, they're not for open borders. Nobody is running on open borders. Now, you could still disagree with their position, but you have to understand it before you disagree with it. And she doesn't do that. So it's just classic Meghan McCain, like, spoiled rich kid, fucking shouldn't even be in that position, but she's in this position, and she's just smug and fucking wrong about everything. But anyway, I digress from that. The funniest part is, she says, well, if you become a general election candidate, you have to get voters like me. What? No, he doesn't. <laughs> no, he doesn't at all. You are, first of all, you're a Republican. You're a Republican. <laughs> okay? So... To try to craft the Democratic Party to just agree with Republicans, well, then why the fuck is there a Democratic Party? No, it's, a, it's the opposition party, okay? But second of all, not only are you a Republican, you're, like, massively rich. <laughs> so the idea that, like, Democrats, you know who you should craft your policies to be in favor of? Rich Republicans. Not at all. The voters that Democrats need to get, very simply... They have to hold their own base, okay, expand their own base, get independence, and get the two times former Obama voter who voted for Trump, who's in the Rust Belt, 
who's living in a dilapidated factory town. That's who they need. They do not need you. And if they were to try to get you, they would lose like half of the people that they already have. So, no, I mean, what a ridiculous, Jesus Christ, what a fucking narcissistic buffoon. I've seen so many articles over the past week, like, you know, David Brooks, who I think is a registered Republican, and Brett Stevens, who is a Republican, writing articles in the New York Times like, now, now, Democrats, you don't want to lose voters like me. Yeah, we do. You're massively wealthy, and you're Republican. Why the fuck? Like, no. No. We want independence. We want to hold our base and expand our base. And we want the two times Obama voter who flipped for Trump and the Rust Belt. That's who we want. You don't fit any of those categories, so you can fuck right off. There's a party for you. It's called the Republican Party. You want the Democrats to become the Republicans, or at least stay like the Republicans, because the Democrats are too far right as it is. That's what you want. How about, no, there's your own party for you. Try to make the Republican Party more in line with your politics. So tell Republicans, hey, don't hate immigrants as much and don't hate fucking gay people as much and keep everything exactly the same and then I'll vote for you. Why don't you go prod them? It only works in that direction. It only works like rich assholes trying to prod Democrats to fall in line to represent them more and not represent the left. Fuck off, man. But we tried that for decades. Fuck off. And then the final thing I'll say is this. Um, Julian Castro... We, we ruthlessly made fun of him when he launched this campaign because he did this goofy-ass video where he's all, like, fake aspirational and shit, and um, he does this, like, really weird smile at the end of the video that's so forced. It's like, it's just so bad. Like, everything about his launch video was terrible. It was really narcissistic and about himself and about his life and just hokey and fucking corny and platitudes and cliches and fake smiles, and everything was terrible. It was just so wrong in so many ways. In the debate, and in this interview here, Julian Castro now looks miserable. Like, he looks like he is depressed. He looks like he doesn't want to be anywhere where he is. He's got this look on his face like, fuck everything. Now, having said that, he's a much better candidate when he's miserable. (laughs) I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. In the debate, he looked depressed. He looked miserable. He wasn't smiling. He had this look like, fuck this. But he did okay in the debates. In this interview here, he doesn't look happy. He looks miserable. He looks like he's fucking dead inside. But he looks like he's a better candidate when he does that. There is a small chance he actually saw our launch video of his and us mocking it ruthlessly. And he was like, okay, I have to do anything but what I did in that launch video. (laughs) So instead of being like fake happy and fake aspirational, now he's just like a curmudgeon. But the curmudgeonness sells a lot better. Like, he's so much more palatable when he's, like, miserable. (laughs) I'm not kidding, man. I really, this is something I really strongly noticed during the debate and in this interview. He seems like he's not happy, but he's a much better candidate when he's not happy. Weird how that works, isn't it? Politics is fucking strange. cold in here. I got to blow into my hand. Okay. The founder of the Daily Coast went after Bernie, so now I'm going to go after him. Buckle up, bitch. Here we go. So the establishment is trying to sharpen their anti-Bernie Sanders message, and they are not doing so great. 
So here's Daily Coast founder Marcos Melitis. He was on Meet the Press. Let's see what he has to say. What do you make of the Bernie Sanders observation by Doug Thornell? Has, has Warren basically eclipsed Sanders in your world of sort of progressive um, fundamental economic change politics? Yeah, absolutely. The problem with Bernie Sanders is that he has the exact same message he had four years ago. And that message didn't get him to victory four years ago. Not sure why he's not trying to calibrate that, particularly in this field. And one of the arguments his supporters make and the campaign is making, too, is that everybody is, quote, stealing his message, as though maybe Bernie invented liberalism. But point aside, Bernie deserves a lot of credit for mainstreaming a yeah. lot of those ideas. But he has done nothing to build his own base of support. And why stick with Bernie, who's as divisive as he is, with are more appealing, uh, inclusive candidates uh, in the field and there's a bunch to choose from? I'm honestly stunned um, how everything he said there was false. Like, it's not even like he gave us a little bit of break from the wrongness. It was just wrong, 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 wrong. So let's, let's go through this here. First of all, the question from, from Chuck Todd, Human Oatmeal, um, he said, has Warren eclipsed Bernie as, like, you know, the fundamental economic change um, lefty messenger? And he's asking this. It's like a push poll. You know what a push poll is? They poll you on a question, not because they're actually interested in the answer, but they want to plant an idea in your head. And that's what Chuck Todd did with that question. Like, oh, is Warren the new person that represents the fundamental change candidate who's, you know, the real messenger of this? Hmm? They want to plant that idea in your head. And, of course, Marcos runs with it because he hates Bernie. By the way, Marcos Melitis, most recently in the news for sending, like, a zillion roses to Nancy Pelosi's office. Shows you where his politics are, okay? Shows you where they are. Um, so they want to plant that in your head. Now, the reality is anybody who's paid attention to this stuff from the beginning knows that's ridiculous. There's no question it's not, it's not an issue. It's not a question as to whether or not Elizabeth Warren is equal to or left of Bernie Sanders in her politics. No, she's right of Bernie Sanders, full stop. That is an empirical question. That's quantitative. You can actually look it up and know. So Bernie Sanders is to the left of Elizabeth Warren, certainly at the very least on foreign policy, but also likely on Medicare for all, too. Now, Warren supporters would say, but Elizabeth Warren clarified in the most recent debate that she's for Medicare for all. But that doesn't erase the waffling that she did before that. And she very clearly said her talking points before that night were, oh, all the Democrats want to get to the same place, whether it's Medicare for all extra or Medicare X or a public option or Medicare for all. We all want to get to that same place of universal coverage and, you know, affordable access. So she always used the weasel words on health care. And she always said, like, all the Democratic plans are roughly the same and get us to the same place, when that is not true. Because all the plans except Bernie and Jayapal's plan keep the for-profit health insurance companies running the show. So that's not true. Now, recently she changed her tune, but she changed her tune after massive, 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 massive blowback on that issue. So it's not a question. Bernie has always been correct about health care. Elizabeth Warren has waffled and just recently just started to say the right things about health care, but I don't know if she'll fight for it the way Bernie will fight for it. Now, foreign policy, never a question. Bernie Sanders was always to the left of Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren, you know, uh, literally has um, served defense contractors in her home state because there are a bunch of them in her home state. Not even close, dude. Not even close. So that's not a question. But 
they make it a question because they want to push that idea. They want to, what they're doing is gatekeeping. Hey, here's as far left as you can go, bro. F- fine, you want to go Elizabeth Warren? Okay, I mean, we don't really like her, but she's somewhat acceptable because at least on some issues she's kind of corporate. So fine, that's as far left as you can go with Elizabeth Warren. That's what they're doing there. Um, then he says, and this is a hilarious criticism. Twitter lit up over this and ripping Marcos a new asshole. Um, oh, his problem is that he has the same message as four years ago. Hey, Marcos, the issues didn't change from four years ago. We still have, you know, 30 to 40 million Americans that don't have health insurance. We still have 30 to 45,000 Americans who die every year because they don't have access to basic health care. We still have low wages, stagnant wages in this country. We're, We're still waging endless war. Wall Street is still ripping everybody off. His message is the same because... The solutions are the same. And that's a hell of a criticism, isn't it? Bernie Sanders, here he is being all consistent and stuff. That's not a criticism. If anything, you're complimenting him, and you don't even realize that you're complimenting him. How sad are you, man? Because, listen, he's working backwards from his conclusion, and his conclusion is, I don't like Bernie. I don't like him. I don't agree with him. So I'm going to work backwards from that, and I'll attack him for whatever reason, good reason, bad reason, no reason, doesn't matter. And he ends up attacking him for being too consistent. <laughs> what the fuck? Then he says, um, oh, the accusation is other Democrats are stealing his message. Like Bernie invented liberalism. Marco, see, on this point, I think he's playing dumb on purpose. I don't think it's just like, oh, he's wrong about something. No, no, no. He's playing dumb on purpose. Bernie Sanders is an FDR-style New Deal Democrat, also known as a social Democrat. He calls himself a Democratic Socialist. If you actually go by the definitions, he's not a democratic socialist because he's not fully post-capitalist, but he's a deep reformer, and he believes in social democracy. He believes in taking certain things out of the marketplace because they don't belong there, like healthcare, like college, for example. Okay, That's what he is. Almost all of the other candidates on stage are not social democrats. They're centrist neoliberals. They still wholeheartedly believe in keeping these giant swaths of the economy in the private sector. So, no, he's making the social democratic message, the main message, when for decades in the Democratic Party it was the neoliberal message that was the main message. Even Obama, people accused him of being far left. Oh, please, don't make me laugh. He's always been a center leftist, a, a neoliberal. I'm not, by the way, I'm not trying to use that word as a pejorative. I'm just using that word as a descriptive explanation of their position. They're tweakers of the marketplace. That's it. Bernie is in favor of fundamental reform to take certain aspects of the economy out of the marketplace and to make it government. So that's not the same. It's not even close to the same thing. And yes, for all the candidates to now shake Bernie to social democracy, that means that at least in their rhetoric, they have to move left. So of course that's Bernie changing the party. Again, I think he's being dense on purpose. This isn't like just a mistake. It's him like obfuscating on purpose. And then finally, um, this is just not true when he says, oh, Bernie's done nothing to build his own base of support since the last election. Bernie Sanders has been doing rallies all over this country. He's been talking to leaders in the black community in the South, getting their support, working with them, doing everything he can to do better in communities that he didn't do as well in last time. So in the last election, yes, he admits it. Everybody knows it. It was the black vote in the South that did hurt Bernie. He did really well in other areas. He struggled in California, he struggled in New York, and he struggled with the black vote in the South. Bernie's doing everything that he can 
in order to change that and in order to let communities know, hey, listen, I care. I'm here to work, about, to work on your concerns. Here are my policy ideas. Here's what I'm fighting for. I'm going to do everything I can to change this system fundamentally. So he's working his ass off, man. In fact, I would argue nobody's worked harder. But still, somehow, Marcos goes out there and says he's done nothing to build his own base. That's fundamentally not true. So it's a shame that, you know, he says such ridiculous things. You know, I met him at Politicon. I was on a panel with him. He's a nice guy in person. He's a nice dude. So it brings me no pleasure to do this segment to be like, hey, dude, come on, what are you doing here? But I have to do it because this is, this is wild. A lot of the criticisms are just beyond silly. political cartoonist gets fired. Let's discuss this because this is important and you're not going to hear about it in many other places. So there's a Canadian political cartoonist who made a cartoon um, that's a stinging rebuke of Donald Trump's immigration policies. You can see it here over my shoulder, but let me show you a better example here. You can see the whole thing here. Um, It says, do you mind if I play through? And it shows the bodies of drowned migrants, Oscar Alberto, Martinez Ramirez, and his daughter Valeria, Um, they recently died trying to get into the United States, and there's a pic of them that went viral that's disturbing. It's them, you know, basically laying in the river dead. Um, And the whole idea, I mean, I don't need to explain this to you. You guys get it already, but the idea is you got Trump. He's like a callous, elitist, rich dude, and he doesn't care about the suffering of these poor people. And so he's like playing golf. Oh, you mind if I play through to these dead folks? And, yeah, I mean, it's a... (laughs) Agree or disagree with it, that is a powerful cartoon. In other words, it's going to evoke reactions from people. Of course it is. That's the point. The point is to shock the conscience. Mission accomplished. That's what they did. Um, So, Brunswick News fired the cartoonist. Now, he worked for Brunswick News, the Moncton Times, and Transcript, the Fredericton Daily Gleaner, and the St. John Telegraph Journal. He worked for all those because they were all under the same parent company, and now he has no job. And get this, the parent company that fired him is, privately own, is a privately owned conglomerate that's headquartered in New Brunswick, and it's also an international company that's worried about trade concerns. So the theory is the reason why they fired this cartoonist is because the head of this company was afraid he wouldn't get trade deals with the U.S. because he was afraid Trump would know that they employ a guy who makes cartoons like this about him. By the way, this is a great example of why you need rules and regulations when it comes to media ownership. Like, should somebody who is an oil billionaire also own a newspaper? Well, then the newspaper is a lot less likely to go after the oil industry and to say, hey, there's some corrupt dealings going on here, or they're increasing pollution, or whatever it may be. It's, you need rules around media like this because if you don't, you're going to have massive conflicts of interest, and it's going to affect the job done by the papers. It's like, um, it's like Jeff Bezos being a giant owner of uh, the Washington Post. They're not very likely to go after Jeff Bezos now, are they? They're not very likely to go after Amazon now, are they? 
So there's always going to be conflict of interest problems. If you have state media, you say, oh, my God, they're going to be too biased in favor of the de decisions made by the government. These are all tough things that need to be navigated and need to be fleshed out. You need to have rules that make sense as much as possible where you give people the freedom to say what they want to say because that's important to let people speak freely. Now, the other point to make about this is, and you guys probably saw this coming from a mile away, but I say it because it's true, this is why freedom of speech is so important. It's because I always tell you guys, you have to be for free speech if you're on the left because that's like the first place they go to censor and to deplatform. Because if you're on the left, really on the left, you're questioning power. You're saying the status quo is not working. I'm not in favor of keeping things the same. I'm not in favor of the powers that be. I really want to change stuff. I don't believe in tradition for tradition's sake. I believe in changing things, reforming, progressing, to be a progressive, progress. And when you do that, it by definition threatens the status quo. So if you're a political cartoonist and you're on the left and you do a cartoon like this, a lot of people are going to say, hey, man, that's offensive. Fuck you. And they're going to like it that you got fired. This is why you should believe in free speech protections, because you don't have a leg to stand on unless you're principled. And I like to, I like to think I'm principled on this issue, which is why I defend odious assholes on the right when there's a free speech concern involving them, because... Now, there's no hypocrisy, there's no contradiction, there's no, oh my God, look at him flipping. No, now it's, you all knew it was coming, this dude deserves to have free speech, and he should not have gotten fired. This is a clear example of the principle of free speech being incredibly important. Because you should be allowed to say whatever you want to say. This is just a battle of ideas. His idea is the philosophy, the policies being implemented by the Trump administration at the border are barbaric, are backwards. He's callous. He's indifferent. He doesn't give a fuck about these people. He doesn't even see them as human. He's out there playing golf while people are dying at the border and doesn't concern, doesn't keep them up at all. Why shouldn't you be allowed to say that? Why shouldn't you be allowed to shock the conscience with a, with a cartoon on that? You absolutely should. Even if you don't agree with this guy, you should be like, yeah, let him do his thing. Because there's plenty of fucking idiot Ben Garrison cartoons out there who's a right-wing cartoonist who does stupid, you know, draws stupid cartoons. Should he get fired because he, you know, whatever, goes after the Democrats in a certain way? He'll go after Pelosi and they might call it sexist or whatever. Should he get fired? No. Well, he shouldn't get fired either for this shit. So, it's a shame, man. It's a shame that we got to walk on eggshells. No, you're supposed to criticize your leaders. You're supposed to question those in power. You're supposed to have stinging rebukes. You can express that however you want to express that. That's artistic license. And we should all stand in solidarity. This guy should absolutely be rehired. And if he's not rehired by the original newspaper, somebody else should give him a job. Okay, let me take my final break. When we come back, um, I have a story that's going to confuse the shit out of you. And you're going to walk away liking George Soros and the Koch brothers? What the fuck? And then the, there was an LGBTQ panel on Vice News. 
and they're not fans of Pete Buttigieg, so you don't want to miss that story either. Stay right there. We'll be right back with all of that and more.
we're here. We're back. Okay, so this next story, prepare to be incredibly shocked because I was shocked and I didn't know what to make of it for a variety of reasons. Reasons which I will explain. So this next story is going to confuse the shit out of you. Apparently, George Soros and the Koch brothers have teamed up to end U.S. forever war policy. So this article is in the Boston Globe, and they say the following. Besides being billionaires and spending much of their fortunes to promote pet causes, the leftist financier George Soros and the right-wing Koch brothers have little in common. They could be seen as polar opposites. Soros is an old-fashioned New Deal liberal. The Koch brothers are fire-breathing right-wingers who dream of cutting taxes and dismantling government. Now they have found something to agree on. The United States must end its forever war and adopt an entirely new foreign policy. In one of the most remarkable partnerships in modern American political history, Soros and Charles Koch, the more active of the two brothers, are joining to finance a new foreign policy think tank in Washington. It will promote an approach to the world based on diplomacy and restraint rather than threats, sanctions, and bombing. This is a radical notion in Washington where every major think tank promotes some variant of neocon militarism or liberal interventionism. Soros and uh, Koch are uniting to revive the fading vision of a peaceable United States. The street cred they bring from both ends of the political spectrum, along with the money they are providing, will make this new think tank an off-pitch voice for statesmanship amid a Washington chorus that promotes brinksmanship. This is big, said Trita Parsi, former president of the National Iranian American Council and co-founder of the new think tank. It shows how important ending endless wars is if they're willing to put aside their differences and get together on this project. We are going to challenge the basis of American foreign policy in a way that has not been done in at least the last quarter century. Well, color me surprised. <laughs> what a weird story. All right, so let's, there's a, so many angles to this that I need to get into. First and foremost, let's just talk about money and politics and the principle here. That I am not okay with. The idea that all it takes to really change a governing philosophy in Washington, D.C. is, hey, get a couple billionaires and they'll use all their money to lobby the shit out of our government to get their way, and 10 out of 10 times it'll work. I disagree with that on principle, because the same system that allows these guys to swoop in there and play the hero on this issue is the same system that allowed the Project for a New American Century and neocon think tanks to dominate U.S. foreign policy for decades and led to the deaths of countless people. So... On principle, you shouldn't have wealthy elites able to control the government. Even if those wealthy elites happen to get it right every now and then, even if a blind squirrel happens to find an acorn every now and then, you know, that still doesn't justify the premise of the system. We have to fight the system at its core. We have to change the impact of money in politics and basically make private money financing our elections illegal, and we have to make it so that it's all publicly financed elections. And... The impact of big money is so odious that every now and then if you get an issue where we're, they're on the right side of it, they're on the side that's better, if you buy into the system, you'll always perpetually lose because big money is always going to line up behind big money interests 
the overwhelming majority of the time. Every now and then, like in this instance, you have, you know, a group of billionaires here that are definitely anti-war, and they don't like war, so they're using their money for something that's positive. But at the same time, you've got the Koch brothers working, you know, lobbying the shit out of Washington to make sure that they get deregulated and their taxes get cut as well. So that's an important part of this conversation, that we should still disagree with money and politics on principle because it's corrupted our system so thoroughly and it makes it so the people are not represented. That's the first point. Now, the second point is, having said all that, oh, my God, we might actually get some change on foreign policy in the proper direction. Because if there was anything that our side was missing all along, it was money. It was money. Like I said, Project for a New American Century and other neocon think tanks, they've heavily been influencing our politics for decades. The left and the libertarian side of this argument, we've been MIA in Washington, D.C. We're among the people we're massively popular because, you know, you Go talk to anybody about any of our wars, and the overwhelming majority of the time, they hate them. They're like, what are we doing? We're wasting money. Our people are dying. Civilians are dying over there. We got nothing out of this. It's stupid. We're at, we have a crumbling infrastructure here. We should take care of that. Like, we already won when it comes to public opinion, but that doesn't reflect in D.C. Why? The money. There is no organized money on the side of ending war. Well, now there is. Now they're starting it. And it's so funny because... The, like, quintessential boogeyman. The boogeyman of the left and the boogeyman of the right. They're now uniting to do something good. <laughs> Whoa! Because the Koch brothers really are swashbuckling deregulators and, you know, trickle-downers. They want to cut taxes on the rich themselves. They want to get rid of all the rules in their way for their businesses. And George Soros, you know, he's the key boogeyman of the left. How many segments has Alex Jones done where he, you know, talks about how he's like a Nazi sympathizer and he's a terrible human being and all this stuff, and he acts like he's part of the New World Order and he's in favor of all these wars? Apparently, the Koch brothers and George Soros are all against endless war, and they would rather have negotiation and diplomacy. So it's just funny that, like, two these, like, figureheads of everything corrupt and wrong in politics are now randomly on the right side of an issue, and they're going to try to actually implement change on that front. So even though I'm against it on principle, because I'm against all money in politics on principle, um, the net effect of this will be positive, because now you'll actually have more of a a fight in Washington, D.C., where there are competing philosophies. If they're really financing non-interventionist thinkers, non-interventionist lobbyists, the result will be more non-intervention that makes its way into Washington, D.C. So it's almost like we live in a dream, we live in a simulation, and we just woke up to see, like, the ultimate face turn. (laughs) These guys are all heels, and they just did a massive face turn. (laughs) So I guess go Koch Brothers and go George Soros? (laughs) But no, for real, that's, uh, that's incredible. And maybe fewer people will die. And also, by the way, e- even if you believe in U.S. empire, as everybody in Washington, D.C. does, I think what they don't understand is this might actually prolong the empire. Because if you deal with world affairs, 
and, you know, you talk to people and you negotiate and you do diplomacy, that doesn't mean that you, like, lose all your power. I got news for you. Even if we cut our military 50%, we still have the biggest military in the world by far. So the idea of, like, oh, now we lose our international standing. Actually, one could argue that you would lose your international standing a lot quicker by doing all these endless wars and by creating nothing but enemies everywhere. So I don't know exactly what their motivation is. I think they might just disagree with war. The Koch's from a libertarian perspective. George Soros from more of a, a democratic or left perspective. Um, but the intent of them might also be, in a weird way, to keep the U.S. the sole superpower in the world. Because you don't have to bomb everything and invade everyone in order to be the superpower. And they might think that as well, although I'm not sure and I don't want to, you know, put thoughts in their head and words in their mouth. But either way, this is a fascinating story. And now you're probably going to start to see Washington change a little bit in terms of not only neocons and liberal interventionists being in control. Now you'll see some more um, non-interventionists come through because now they're financed. All right, let's go to Vice News. You will get a kick out of this. So Vice News had an LGBTQ panel, and they asked about Mayor Pete, and the responses are pretty funny. Um, Mayor Pete is gay. He's been on the cover of magazines with his husband. Does having somebody who's gay running right now, does that make you want to vote for him? Mm-hmm. I think you should vote on policy. You got, I get asked that question all the time. It's great to have a gay candidate. It'd be great to have a losing candidate or a France candidate. I'm going to the policy. Yeah. Everything else is peripheral. I could not care less. I mean, the fact that he is gay doesn't... I, I think there's such division in the LGBTQ or queer and trans, whatever you call it, community between gay and trans, trans and cis. Um, but that doesn't mean he has my back as a trans person. It doesn't mean that he will have trans-affirming policy um, and support those most marginalized in the trans community. It means nothing to me that he is a gay person because he's also cis and he's also white, um, and he's holding all of those identities and experiences at the same time. So I would love to see some firm policy proposals that include trans people and non-binary people. We haven't even talked about that yet, um, but I haven't seen that yet. I don't know why I'm not more excited about him than I am. There's something missing. I'm surprised that everybody is so anti-Pete. I mean, I think, I know a lot of sort of Pete-curious conservatives uh, who think And one of the main reasons is, is that I think, you know, I think he's very progressive, but he's totally moderate. And I think even just listening to us, I mean, everybody's so angry all the time to have somebody who is somewhat aspirational um, and who is, is trying to make a pitch for something something better and more you know something more uniting? Like why is that so terrible? I think it's I think it's nice. One of the reasons I walked away from the Democratic Party and liberalism is I am so fed up with identity politics. I am so fed up with political correctness. I am so fed up with all of and everyone here has already said it, it's lack of policy, all identity, and that's what he is. I mean he's just a gay man with no ideas. Okay, so that goes on, by the way. Um, There's a few things to note here. One of them said, well, okay, no, I'm not that excited about Pete. 
because he may be gay, but he's also cis and white. And, like, he juggles all those identities at once. What if I were to tell you I don't care about any of those things? <laughs> like, I'm not, I, I'm in no way, shape, or form against any of those identities. You can be whatever you want to be. But like one of them said, all I care about is policy. Although that gets to the next point, I find it hilarious that the people, the two folks on the panel who said, oh, all I care about is policy, they're wearing MAGA hats. So, okay, you tell me, what are Donald Trump's policies that you support so much? I'll wait. My guess is here's their answer. You have no answer. Come on, man. You're wearing a MAGA hat. Donald Trump has no coherent philosophy. Donald Trump is a, is a, is a mess in terms of what he believes and what he implements. He implemented deregulation and tax cuts for the rich and we're still bombing, like, eight countries. Are those the policy ideas that you thought were so wonderful? Is that what you're, you know, you look forward to? Destroying the EPA? Is that what your, you know, policy beliefs are? Hey, fuck the environment? <laughs> so it's just, it's ridiculous that, like, the MAGA hat people were like, me, bro, I only care about policy. Oh, please. Um, also, the guy who said, like, oh, all I care, you know, oh, it's all identity politics, and it's all political correctness, and I'm so sick of it. The only people who are acting serious in this race and who are focusing on policy are the lefties, Bernie Sanders, Tulsi Gabbard. Like, these are the people who are talking about Medicare for all is the way to go, and here's why Medicare for all is the way to go. We need to eliminate, um, you know, student loan debt, for example. Um, We need to raise wages and implement a living wage. Like, I always find it funny when people say the left only cares about political correctness and identity politics. And it's like, no, maybe the lefties that you're fighting with on Twitter 24-7 are only doing that. But I got news for you. The broader left-wing movement is moving forward on these important goals, these important economic goals and foreign policy goals. And what I'm focused on all day long is policy. So it's like they build up this straw man of the left, or they extrapolate based on a tiny sliver of the left, and then they whine about it. And it's like, well, okay, there is a sliver of the left that doesn't care about policy, but most of us are fighting on policy. And then also, like I said, you're wearing a MAGA hat. So forgive me for not being all too you know, sympathetic to the idea that you care deeply about policy. And then it was hilarious because the only um, person who likes Pete is a conservative. <laughs> I think it, that was an anti-Trump conservative. You had two Republicans one lefty, and then one um, one anti-Trump conservative who's like, yeah, he may be progressive, but he's tonally moderate, and I like that because he's, like, aspirational. It's so funny how there are people see politics so differently because, to me, that's just a hallmark that he's a bullshitter. Like, everything she just said, oh, he's tonally moderate, but he pretends to be progressive. Like, yeah, he's just pretending. He never says anything about policy. He literally argued against policies. Like, we should stop focusing on all that and just lead with our values. So in other words, fill the room with noise without actually saying anything. So some people look in a politician for a figurehead. Like, oh, just give me somebody that's like a figurehead and like the chief bullshitter. <laughs> like, that's what some people want in a politician. That's not at all what I want. I want somebody who's going to implement policy and improve people's lives through said policy. So it's funny that the only person who liked Pete is a conservative and is basically looking for somebody who's aspirational. 
you know, if, if you want something like that in your life, go find a, you know, a self-help guru. Go watch some Tony Robbins bullshit. We want serious people who are politicians, so that's hilarious. But the LGBTQ panel, almost across the board, because you didn't see all of them there. There's a longer conversation. By the way, it gets crazy in that conversation. <laughs> people start yelling at each other. You got fucking non-binary people versus trans people. There's, it's a two-part discussion. I watched both of them. Um, but it wasn't just them. You saw a little snippet. Almost all of them are against Mayor Pete, and I find it hilarious that, like, he's kind of staked part of his, his, his fame on the fact that he's gay. Like, they're literally putting him on the cover of magazines like, gay man, gay man, isn't that wonderful? And, like, even though he's doing that, the gay community is like, eh, not really buying it, dog. Okay, final story of the day, bitch. So I want to show you this short explainer about Arthur Laff, Arthur, blah, 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 blah. Art Laffer, I think his full name is Arthur. Whatever, doesn't matter. Um, he is the godfather of trickle-down economics, and... Um, I want to give you a good sense of just how wrong Republicans have been about taxes for 40 years. Let's watch and then we'll discuss. President Trump awarded economist Arthur Laffer the Medal of Freedom today, making him the first person ever to win that honor for scribbling on a cocktail napkin. In 1974, Laffer had a drink with Dick Cheney, who was then President Gerald Ford's deputy chief of staff, and drew a sketch of what became known as the Laffer Curve. The curve starts with two truisms. One, if the income tax rate is 0%, the government collects no tax revenue. And two, if the income tax rate is 100%, the government also collects no tax revenue since no one will bother to work. Laffer put those two points on a graph and then drew a curve between them. The idea behind the curve is easy to understand. As income tax rates rise, so does the amount of money the government collects. But at some point, people have less of an incentive to work or start a business since they get to keep less of their income. So when tax rates rise beyond that point, tax revenue actually begins to fall. The implication is that there's an optimal rate that maximizes the amount of tax revenue the government can collect. It also means that in some circumstances, you can cut taxes and actually raise tax revenue. Now, the only way to know whether a tax cut actually will increase tax revenue is to figure out what the optimal rate is. If it's low, the curve looks like this. And as tax rates go down, revenue goes up. If it's high, which most economists believe it to be, the curve looks like this. And as tax rates go up, revenue does too. Laffer himself, though, didn't really bother with trying to figure out the shape of the curve. He just made it symmetrical and said that the U.S. was on the wrong side of it. This was music to the ears of conservatives. They seized on Laffer's idea and, with his help, made it even catchier. Tax cuts would pay for themselves. Americans could eat their cake and have it too. Cut taxes and still pay for government programs without increasing the deficit. The Laffer curve became the justification for the Reagan tax cuts, which over five years slashed the top income tax rate from 70% to 28%. It was the justification for massive tax cuts in Kansas in 2012. And it was trotted out again to help rationalize Trump's massive tax cuts. 
The only problem is that none of it was true. The Reagan tax cuts didn't pay for themselves. They cut tax revenues by 13%. Kansas's tax cuts reduced state tax revenue by almost $700 million, forcing steep cuts to government services. And the Trump cuts decreased corporate tax revenue by almost $100 billion last year, even though corporate profits were up. As a result of all these cuts, no one can doubt that we're now well below the optimal tax rate. So the Laffer Curve is telling us today that the way to raise revenue is to raise taxes. But good luck getting a Medal of Freedom for that idea. So uh, that doesn't even tell the entire story because he was talking about um, what happened with corporate taxes there. The reality is that as a result of Trump's tax cuts, um, it's going to blow over a $2 trillion hole in the deficit. Now remember... They claimed every step of the way that the tax cuts are going to pay for themselves. So you don't have to worry about it. We don't agree with the economists who say this is going to leave a giant hole in the deficit. We don't believe it at all. We think that when you cut taxes, the revenue of the government actually goes up. So you have nothing to worry about here. The tax cuts will pay for, pay for themselves. There will be no increase in the deficit. We already know that's not true because the deficit has already skyrocketed. But they never come out and say, Whoop, whoops. I guess we were wrong, which leads to the question, and here it is. Do they just use this as an intellectual veneer because all they care about is cutting taxes and giving corporations and their rich billionaire buddies more money? So do they just use this as a veneer? They know it's not true, but they use it as a, an intellectual veneer as to why they're doing what they're doing so that they could just run out the back door with all the money. That's possible, right? It's possible that they know that what they're saying is bullshit, but they, they say it anyway because all they care about is actually getting that money. And so they implement the policy, they get the money, and they never come back out and say, oh, I guess we were empirically proven wrong. That's possible. Or it's possible that they're just idiots and that they really think like, no, no, seriously, this time it'll work, bro, even though the past like four times we fucking tried it, it hasn't worked. I don't know what it is, frankly. I don't care what the fuck it is. All I know is it's the wrong policy. And, you know, there are a variety of aspects to uh, a right-wing economic approach. Obviously, tax cuts for the rich and tax cuts for corporations. That's like the cornerstone of it. The other cornerstone of it is deregulation. You know, the philosophy is if you get the government off the backs of businesses, then businesses will expand and the economy will do better. But, of course, we learn that oftentimes when you get rid of the regulatory agencies and you cut back, then there's really no cop on the beat to look after what these companies are doing, and that's when they start breaking rules. That's when you know, some companies might pollute more, for example. Some companies might take extra risk for short-term gain and in the long run threaten the viability and the stability of the economy. That's what we've seen on Wall Street when you deregulate. So really, tax cuts for the rich and deregulation, this right-wing approach to the economy, time and time and time again, it's been proven to be a bad approach because we have what's called boom-bust cycles. So everything takes off, and you think everything's going great, and then everything explodes. And that's what we're in the middle of seeing right now. And you notice how Trump always brags about the stock market being high. First of all, it's not a good indicator of how your average American is doing. Second of all, the bubble's going to burst eventually. And when the bubble does burst, it also does hurt regular people because it's a situation where when the stock market is going well, the rich and the corporations are the only ones feeling the benefit. But then when the stock market does poorly, the corporations start laying people off and it hurts regular people. So 
it's, uh, it's kind of a double whammy of fucking overworking people. And that's right-wing economics in a nutshell. <laughs> that's what it is. So it was the same economic philosophy that led to the Great Depression, same economic philosophy that led to um, the post-Reagan recession, same economic philosophy that led to the subprime mortgage crisis in the Great Recession, along with repealing Glass-Steagall, which was an important regulation that separated commercial banking and investment banking. So to give this guy a fucking, he's a fraud, to give this guy, you know, a Medal of Freedom or whatever the fuck he got, honestly, it's embarrassing, man. It really is embarrassing. That curve is so just, on logic alone, you could rip it apart. Like, the idea of, like, here, this is the way it works. But what's not accounted for in the Laffer curve is, what is the government money going towards? So, in other words, you could have a high tax rate, like they do in many social democracies, but then that money's actually going towards the people, so they're not at all disincentivized from working. Yes, if you have a high tax rate and then all that money is going towards endless war, all that money is going towards Wall Street bailouts, corporate welfare, well, yeah, then you might see people go, what the fuck am I working so hard for? My money's going to shit I don't even agree with and they're taxing me high. That's one thing. But if you work and then your money goes towards health care for everybody and education for everybody and a strong social safety net and paid vacation time, those are obviously not the same thing. And so maybe your work ethic is not impacted by that. If anything, you'll work harder and you don't care about the high tax rate. You support the high tax rate. So it's just so simplistic and stupid. And what would you expect? We're talking about Art Laffer and we're talking about Donald Trump. Okay. We done, baby. All right, guys. I love you. We'll see you on our next show. Not sure yet if there's a show on Thursday, but I will keep you updated on Twitter at Kyle Kalinske. Love y'all. Peace.